I'm so grateful that many of our guests have been released from prison either before or after our coverage was released, but others continue to languish behind bars for crimes they didn't commit, including the man whose case we're going to highlight again today, John Jones. The Ohio Innocence Project is still hard at work to set him free, and this is his story of how a grieving father's loss was compounded by his wrongful conviction. John Jones and Deja Ruiz had three children while working on their high school diplomas. After celebrating Deja's mother's birthday on March 18, 2010, the young family laid down to sleep. Despite the expected waking and feeding that comes with six-month-old twins, the night was ordinary. When Deja left for school at 8 a.m., John propped some bottles on a blanket near twins Jada and Jasmine and went back to sleep. Then, when John woke again at 9.40 a.m., turned on cartoons for his son, and went to attend to the twins, Jada was unresponsive. In a panic, he called family and 911. The dispatcher coached him through CPR until first responders arrived and took over. He did everything a concerned father would do, but when testing was done at the hospital, doctors found what they mistakenly thought was conclusive evidence of lethal child abuse. However, over the next decade, the science that they used to support John's conviction has crumbled under the weight of reality. Had a jury heard all the other now logical explanations for the symptoms present in little Jada's body, John Jones never would have served a day of his 15-to-life prison sentence. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, of course, your host. And today we're here to tell you the heartbreaking story of John Jones, who was just 17 years old when his six-month-old daughter, Jada Ruiz, died. And shortly thereafter, the tragedy was compounded by the hubris of some in the medical establishment and legal system, armed with the junk science of shaken baby syndrome. And today I'm joined by a phenomenal co-host. Avid listeners will remember Greg Glad from the junk science episode on roadside drug testing. He is the criminal justice fellow at Americans for Prosperity. Greg, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you so much for allowing me to co-host. Uh, you know, you and I have gotten close over the last couple of months. I've been working on criminal justice reform since about 2015 now, and, and to be able to do this today and co-host is, you know, really an honor. So no, I really thank you again. Well, I'm the one who really should feel honored, and not just because you've joined us, but also because with us is one of the world's leading experts in one of the most troubling aspects of our criminal legal system, shaken baby syndrome. Now, she was also featured on Wrongful Conviction Junk Science when we covered this subject. The executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences, Kate Judson, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Hi, thank you so much, Jason, and hi, Greg. And last but not least, we have with us staff attorney at the Ohio Innocence Project, the man who's representing John Jones, Donald Castor. Donald, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me on. And we'll be joined very soon by John Jones, who's going to be calling in from Lebanon Correctional Facility in Ohio. But first, let's get a little background on what John was up against when Jada became unresponsive. Kate, can you give a brief history on shaken baby syndrome, you know, where it came from, this hypothesis, and then how did it start to enter its way into the criminal justice system as, as a viable scientific theory to convict caretakers of, of murder? Sure, Greg. Shaken baby syndrome was originally proposed as a hypothesis to explain a phenomenon that a pediatric neurosurgeon in Great Britain was seeing in his patients. He would sometimes have infants who died or were seriously ill without a clear cause and without external trauma. And yet the internal features looked a lot like kids who had suffered some kind of traumatic injury. So those findings were subdural hematoma, which is bleeding between the coverings of the brain, retinal hemorrhage, which is bleeding at the back of the eye, and encephalopathy and cerebral edema, which sort of acts together as one leg of what sometimes people call the triad. Cerebral edema is brain swelling and encephalopathy is brain dysfunction. And so Dr. Guthkelch, this pediatric neurosurgeon, was seeing these findings in kids and they looked injured on the inside, but not on the outside. And he thought that one reason for that might be a common disciplinary technique in his home of Northern England in the 70s, which was shaking. And so what Dr. Guthkelch said is that these medical findings could be due to shaking. And Dr. Guthkelch wasn't claiming to have the answers, but that rather that he was hypothesizing about what might be causing these findings. So that started to evolve. A, a radiologist in, in New York, John Caffey, built on that. And he published articles saying the same thing, right? That parents should be gentle with infants. But neither of these doctors suggested that the medical findings that they associated with shaking were exclusively diagnostic to shaking, nor did they say that there was a w reliable way to place blame on a caregiver when a child had these medical findings. Right. And so where was the switch then from this just being, you know, a hypothesis or an unexplained phenomena to a verifiable medical diagnosis that actually 
began convicting individuals of murder of a child. And there's a little bit of a gap in understanding between the mid to late 1970s and then when we start to see these cases appear in published appellate decisions in the late 80s. And we started to see prosecutors and pediatricians in particular, also pathologists, saying that when children had this collection of findings, which is sometimes called a triad of findings or a constellation of medical findings, that shaking could be diagnosed. And that's when it comes into the criminal legal system. And we start to see the trajectory that we're on today, where parents are wrongfully accused based on only the existence of a particular set of medical findings. And I mean, to be totally clear, there's no debate about whether abusive shaking, violent shaking of an infant is dangerous. It is, and no one should do it. The debate is really whether shaking reliably explains the findings that are often attributed to it, whether shaking can be diagnosed as the cause of those findings. Kate, in doing my research for this, there is a large concentration of these shaken baby syndrome cases in the state of Ohio. And so I I just wanted to see if you had any explanation behind why Ohio kind of had a higher rate of shaken baby syndrome cases than than many other jurisdictions across the nation. Uh, Researchers aren't 100% sure why some places have higher concentrations of diagnoses of SBS than others. It's probably a combination of factors, but some of those factors include prosecutors who are particularly aggressive in going after these kinds of accusations, the media attention certain cases receive in certain media markets, and the child abuse pediatricians or forensic pathologists who work on these cases. If they have a particular belief or bent, then there are more likely to be more accusations of shaking within you know, that person's jurisdiction or area of control. And Ohio is one of those places. And now we'll go to Lebanon Correctional Facility to speak with a young man who was doing his best as a young teenager to raise three kids while finishing high school in the third largest shaken baby syndrome epicenter in the country, Akron, Ohio. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... An inmate at the Lebanon Correctional Facility. To accept this call, press zero. To prevent, this call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. Hello? John? Yeah, this is John. John, like I always say, I'm glad you're here with us, but I'm sorry because of the reason you're here, or more to the point, because of where you are. Thanks for having me. So... I wanted you to take us back, if you will, to your life before this absolute horror happened. You were growing up in Akron. I grew up with four sisters who struggled. I grew up poor. We moved around a lot. My mom had some struggles, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. You know, my uh, my father as well had the same struggles. Regardless of what she was going through, her own personal problems, my mom always was around. She was always with us. But my grandmother ended up getting custody of me when I was real young. She just put us on a path to try to be as successful as we could. Growing up, I did real good in school. Always was like an honor roll student. Once I became a teenager, and that's when I came into contact with my child's mother. I met her December 16th my 14th birthday, and my son was conceived nine days later on Christmas Eve, Christmas night. So now I'm 14, I'm expecting a child on the way. I knew that I had a responsibility now. So school no longer was a priority. I did what I needed to do to provide for him. As time progressed, me and her eventually began to establish a relationship, get closer. A couple years later, that's when my twins were conceived. Jada and Jasmine. We ended up getting an apartment together on our own. 
my grandmother was still technically my legal guardian, so I lived with them, but I spent most nights with my child's mother just to be around my children. Growing up, my father was always in my life, but like I said, he was battling with addiction. But even though I loved him unconditionally, he just wasn't the best that he could have been. So that made me want to make sure I was the best I could have been, regardless of how old I was, regardless of school, whatever I was going through, I was going to be present every single day in their life, no matter what, regardless of the status of me and their mother's relationship, how healthy or how, how unhealthy it was. I was going to make sure I was there for my kids, no matter what. And that's admirable. And so you, your children's mother, Deja, your son, Tyshawn, and the twins, Jada and Jasmine, all moved into an apartment together. Deja was 18, you're 17, and you were both finishing high school through an alternative school for young parents. And somehow you're making it work, which, which brings us to March 19th, 2010. The night before that morning, it was actually our mother's birthday. Everybody spent some time together. It was, it was a cool little vibe, though. Everybody was on the same page. And we went to sleep. Like any other day, we slept down in the living room. I slept on the couch with my daughter Jasmine. She slept down on the floor with my daughter Zayden. And my son was down there with us as well. But throughout the night, she was waking me up, complaining about positioning or feeding, or, you know, my daughter might have been hungry or whatever. She was waking me up throughout the night. But it was, it was just a typical day. And then that morning, she had a test that she had to go take. Right. And from what I understand, you both fed the twins at 5 a.m. and then went back to sleep. Then Deja woke up at 7 a.m. to get ready for school and left around 8. So I get up, walk her to the door, you know, wish her luck on her test, give her a kiss. She go out. At this point, my son's still asleep. My daughter's only on the couch. They laying down. It's early in the morning, so I'm still tired. I go up to my daughter's. I pop the bottles. I learned later on now that this wasn't a smart thing to do just because of the safety concerns with a, with a newborn. But at the time, I really wasn't aware of it, and it was more of like a convenient thing, a way of me going back to sleep, but also feeding them if they were hungry. So I placed the bottles up on the blanket and I prop them up. So I put them right there just so when they do wake up, the bottle will be right there. They'll be able to feed. I can be able to sleep for about another hour or two, whatever. They'll be all right. Everybody be cool. We did this every day multiple times. So it was, it was just another, like I said, it was just another day. But it's at this point, between 8 and 9.40 a.m., that according to the state's theory and what passed for expert testimony, that you allegedly abused your daughter Jada in such a way that it caused all of these supposed injuries or symptoms that were later observed at the hospital. The same ones that Kate had mentioned earlier that make up the triad of shaken baby syndrome. But as we now know, there are a myriad of medical conditions that can and do cause these symptoms in addition to an accidental or intentional traumatic event. And even in those events, it's important to note that a child may be lucid up to 72 hours or even more before the symptoms or injuries become apparent. And in this case, they became apparent to you when you checked on Jada and Jasmine at around 9.40 a.m. on that fateful, awful day. And you know, as a father myself, it's every parent's worst nightmare. So at 9.40 a.m., you woke up, put on cartoons for Tyshawn, and go to check on your daughters, only to find that Jada was unresponsive. That was the scariest moment of my life. That was the worst day of my life. I didn't know what to do in that moment. She wasn't breathing. She wasn't moving. She wasn't responsive at all. I instantly get on the phone. My first reaction was to call our family. 
because my daughters were born with an acid reflex. When they when they feed, they will regurgitate the food. It will come out their nose. Sometimes it will come out their mouth. It didn't happen every time, but it happened frequently. So I, at first, I was wondering if this was the case. So I actually called my mom, and I told them what's going on. But I'm panicking, so I didn't want to stay on the phone with them too long because I'm realizing she's not breathing or nothing. But I called her family as well to let them know. I get off the phone. I call 911. Tell them the whole situation is I'm listening to the uh, 911 operator. She's explaining to me how to do the, the chest compression and the mouth to mouth. I tried, did everything I could, and nothing was working. Like, so at this point, I'm becoming more scared, more upset. I'm crying, like, and I'm just waiting. It seems like it's taking forever. So they finally arrive, they grab her, they take her out, and I begin to speak to the detectives or whatever. I'm telling them everything pretty much that I'm telling you. Just my recollection of that night, that morning. Nothing really stood out to me. From that point, Family members start arriving, everybody's concerned. We all head down to the hospital, and then a couple hours later, that's when we hear the doctor's opinion about what they believe was the cause of everything. When the first responders arrived, they didn't see any signs of any external injuries. They didn't see any bruising or obvious deformities or, or bone fractures. They were under the impression that Jaina might have suffered from SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. And the police see John doing what you would expect a distraught father to be doing. An officer named Dennis Bard starts taking pictures of the scene. There are blankets that are collected. Um, one of the things that's not collected is the bottles that we're, we're feeding to the children. And that becomes critical later on in the state's theory of the case. The bottles are important, at least according to the state, because one of the doctors who testified on behalf of the state told the jury that how much milk and formula was in the bottle would have been really important in establishing the timing of the abuse. Because according to the state's doctor, Jada wouldn't have been able to consume anything from the bottle after suffering the type of injuries that they believe Jada had suffered. And what we now know, and this is so important, is that a child can experience 72 hours or more of lucidity after a traumatic event, whether accidental or intentional which it's not entirely clear that this is, in fact, what happened to cause these symptoms. And I say symptoms because a myriad of medical conditions can cause what happened to Jada to happen. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. So the first responders see this situation as a non-criminal death, not a homicide. So the bottle was just left there, and the lead investigator, Detective Shady, drove John to the hospital. Detective Shady also does a very brief interview of John at the time. Detective Shady and John go to the hospital following the ambulance. And once they get to the hospital, they find out that Jada had been successfully resuscitated. John makes phone calls to family members to let them know that things were at least looking a little bit better now that they were at the hospital. And then doctors at the hospital start to do medical tests. They do a CAT scan, other tests, and again, ultimately, the doctors began to believe that there were actual injuries to Jada. And in fact, once they got to the hospital, John was confronted by a doctor who, who did not testify at trial, but is significant to the case, um, a Dr. Daryl Steiner, who came in and told John and the detective that Jada had suffered from what he called non-accidental injuries. The hospital staff also claimed that there were old injuries insinuating that abuse had taken place for a significant period of time. 
So, John, you had just been through one of the most harrowing experiences that anyone can ever go through. And you were waiting to hear what the path forward might be for your daughter. And the doctors at Akron Children's Hospital, again, the number three epicenter for shaken baby syndrome diagnoses and prosecutions in the country, those doctors tell you, the family, and detectives their opinion that the medical facts observed in Jada, retinal bleeding, subdural bleeding, and brain swelling, as well as a series of fractures, that these could only have been the result of a non-accidental traumatic event, in other words, child abuse, violent shaking by Jada's caretaker at the time that she went unresponsive. And again, we now know that there are a slew of medical conditions that can cause these symptoms and that children can experience 72 hours or more of relatively normal behavior after such a traumatic event, if a traumatic event even ever occurred and was in fact what caused these symptoms. So back then, many in the medical establishment, these doctors included, thought that they could diagnose a crime and the time of that crime, which we now know that they could not. Meanwhile, your story has remained consistent ever since that fateful day, and nowhere in your recollection of events does even a minor frustration occur, let alone violent shaking. Never, never, never. I, we all sitting in the, in the waiting room or in the area, when they come in and they tell us, well, we believe that what's wrong with her was not accidental, was intentional, was caused by somebody was caused by specifically somebody who was there. So then at that point, I felt like I was being accused or even suspected of something. And the only other person that was there with me was their mother. I know I didn't do nothing to her. I never would. So a million things running through my head at that moment. I'm scared, first and foremost, most importantly, for my daughter. Now I'm questioning, like, why are they saying somebody did this? Why are they saying somebody caused this? Like, what happened? Like, did she do something? So a conversation was had afterward outside with just me and her. And, you know, I asked her straight up, like, did you do something? And she did not, you know, I didn't do nothing. I don't know what they're talking about. Like, so now, I just, now I'm just confused. Like, I just don't know what the, I don't know. But detectives continue to question me. They keep talking to me. My natural reaction was to cooperate with them. You know what I'm saying? It's my baby, so however I can help, whatever I can say, but at the end of the day, I don't know much. I don't know what to say. I'm confused like anybody else. Everybody else, I don't know what happened. Once the finger was actually pointed and blame was cast and charges were brought upon me and indictments and handcuffs were placed on me, that's when I started feeling like their intentions wasn't in the right place because if they truly was, then you would have really sought out a real answer instead of just placing it on somebody simply because they were physically in the room. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Orton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. So, 
So with misplaced confidence, they attribute injuries or symptoms to actions and persons when the science barely even supported it back then, let alone now. The causes of Jada's symptoms range from accidental or intentional trauma to internal. For instance, there's a well-recognized condition where there's a little extra space in between the child's brain and skull that stretches the veins that bridge that space, which causes chronic subdural bleeding. It still hasn't been determined what causes this overlying condition, but birth trauma has been suggested as a potential cause, whether natural or cesarean. And this condition usually manifests within the child's second to sixth month. Jada, of course, was six months old when this occurred, and it's logical to think that being birthed as a twin could probably be described as a traumatic event, an event that could cause limb fractures as well. In these shaken baby syndrome cases, CT scans and MRIs will usually show the chronic subdural bleeding, as they found in this case, which will then be used as evidence of repeated abuse. Well, it's misused, but used anyway, when all along there's a legitimate and logical medical explanation. Other potential causes for symptoms like Jada's, I mean, there's, you could write a medical textbook on this, right? It, they include bleeding disorders, collagen disorders, copper disorders, genetic disorders, vitamin deficiencies, even your everyday average household slip and fall. But I seriously doubt whether the number three epicenter for diagnosing or misdiagnosing child abuse did a full genetic workup to rule out all of these potential causes before just sort of cavalierly sending John up the river. So... The allegation was that Jada had a series of fractures and that perhaps those fractures were of different ages. And that combined with the findings of bleeding and of brain swelling were thought to indicate trauma and specifically trauma from abuse. So uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we know happens in wrongful conviction cases all the time is that once the police and in this case, doctors start to head in a certain direction, it begins to be very difficult for them to turn to a new path. And that's what happened here. The police and the doctors didn't look for any other causes. They seized on this diagnosis of shaken baby syndrome, and that's where they went. It's one of the things that makes it harder for us to successfully represent John. Not impossible. We think we'll be successful in this case, ultimately. But it's one of the things that hampers our work some is that we don't have the medical records for Jada from Jada's birth up until March 19th. And the reason is that they were never gathered by either the medical investigators or the law enforcement investigators to look at and to determine whether there was other symptomology other pathology, other things going on with Jada prior to March 19th, instead of just the medical records from March 19th going forward. Particularly with SBS, we've seen you know over 200 cases overturned. In a lot of these, you know, it seemed clear cut that it was abuse. And later on, it was either some sort of minor accident or some sort of genetic cause to this. And so you know, I think people have this notion of, of what SBS is. And then and we see clearly that there is a lot of varying reasons for that to potentially see these findings within a child. And then they're just, you know, initially ignored, but then later come out um, later on when you have a full examination or full medical history. Well, and there's a lot of overlap here, Greg, because a lot of the factors that cause children to have either have health problems or have their health problems not be appropriately diagnosed or treated are also the factors that doctors and, and child protection workers will look at to 
to say that statistically a child is more likely to be abused. And so what I mean by that is parents who are young and parents who are people of color are both more likely to be accused of crimes and more likely to receive disparate treatment within the medical establishment. So those things actually work together to create an unjust result in many cases. Yeah. And it's worth noting that just as we record, a study was just published, which showed that there is intense cognitive bias amongst medical examiners, so much so that when given the same exact evidence, two different groups, and we're talking large groups of medical examiners, looking at exactly the same evidence for a three-year-old that was brought to the hospital with head trauma and died, were four times more likely to rule it a homicide when they were told that the child was black and that the child was brought in by the boyfriend of the mother, as opposed to the other group that was told with exactly the same evidence that the child was white and was brought in by a grandparent. So just to really put a stamp on what you were saying, Kate. So let's turn to the arrest. So John was was not arrested right away, although it was clear that once Jada was taken off of life support and passed away, that they were going to charge him with murder. John didn't have a lot of money as a teenager charged with a crime. He had counsel appointed to represent him. And then counsel got the court to provide some funds for an additional expert witness to help prepare for trial. So at trial, what was the state's theory? What was the evidence behind that? And then what did the defense put together to refute? So Deja agreed with with everything that John had said previously about what happened um, in the hour or so before Deja left for school that day. So there was no inconsistency between what John's been saying and what Deja said happened. Deja, of course, claimed that she didn't do anything to any of the children. According to her testimony at trial, she believed John may have lied to her about any wrongdoing. But Deja's being told by the people who are supposed to know what they're talking about that John killed her child. And and Kate, what were the medical findings that the state witnesses had and what they concluded? The medical facts presented at trial in this case included a series of fractures, mostly fresh, but at least one older fracture, retinal hemorrhaging, subdural hemorrhaging, signs of previous subdural hemorrhaging, and brain swelling. As I said before, this is the classic triad of shaken baby syndrome. Then the state put on three medical witnesses. Dr. Paul McPherson testified that the child would not have been able to suck any milk after sustaining these kinds of injuries. But we now know that a child can experience 72 hours of lucidity after the injuries associated with shaken baby syndrome. And that's what published case reports have shown us. It, It could be even greater than that. So Dr. McPherson conceded that the injuries may have been sustained before John woke at 8 a.m. to give Jada a bottle. The injuries may not have been apparent. And the state had to seal up that concession with Dr. Paul Besunder, who testified that the causal injury could not have been sustained prior to 8 a.m. Again, we now know that a child can experience 72 hours of lucidity or more after the injuries associated with SPS. Their last medical witness's testimony was based on the testimony of Detective Shady, who said that John told him in an unrecorded interview that Jada began to suck the bottle when he made it available by propping it on the blanket nearby. This is refuted by two other recorded interviews with John, as well as Deja's uncontested statement that Jada had drunk half her bottle before Deja left for school. So you can see that the state was trying to box the cause of Jada's death into the window that Jada was under John's care alone. Summit County Coroner Dr. Lisa Kohler 
testified that based on the secondhand information that the child drank a significant portion of the milk after 8 a.m., the injuries were a result of being shaken. Because if she could still muster the energy to drink milk after 8 a.m., then the trauma must have been committed by John to cause her to go unconscious. However, and I know that I sound like a broken record here, if there was causal trauma, it could have happened 72 hours into the past from when Jada became unresponsive. So the state's case was completely undermined by what we now know about the junk science that they were relying on to convict John. The defense, however, called renowned forensic pathologist Dr. John Arden, who agreed that these could have been injuries from abuse or not, and that they could have occurred between 7 and 9.45 a.m. However, the evidence available did not permit a medical opinion with any degree of specificity regarding the timing of any of the fresh injuries, and that it is not medically reasonable to make any such determinations. Subdural hemorrhaging does not typically cause immediate incapacitation. So the way the state was trying to fence in this crime to that 8 to 9.40 a.m. window just doesn't hold water. Dr. Arden testified that Jada's medical records corroborate John's telling of events to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And Dr. Arden isn't, you know, I'll, I'll say for lack of a better term, one of these, you know, defense witness gun for hire that'll that'll kind of say, you know, what he wants. I mean, he was a believer of SBS for a very long time. And, and he's mentioned very recently, like you said, in more recent studies that doctors need to be very mindful of diagnosing this and, and they're really missing key facts. And Kate, you, you mentioned it and, and I'll ask the tough question. I mean, you, you have fractures and limbs at least diagnosed by state's witnesses and, and other things. At trial, were there any explanations about where potentially these injuries may have come? Because, you know, you, I think you, you're on a jury, you're seeing, you know, multiple fractures and, and damage to the head and then also to the extremities. What is important to know about medical findings in these kinds of cases is that Medical findings might look like abuse, but they might not necessarily be abuse. And that can happen for a few reasons. One is that injuries that are accidental can be misinterpreted by medical providers and investigators as abuse. And another is related to this assumption that sometimes medical providers make that because they don't know about the child's underlying medical conditions, that the child doesn't have any. So maybe a child has a bone disorder. They might fracture very easily. The, the classic example of this is little babies in a neonatal intensive care unit who are born, for example, very premature. And they can experience fractures with totally normal handling, changing their diaper, things like that. But that's not the only scenario in which children can have what appear to be really serious injuries from little or no trauma. And because we don't know enough about Jada's medical condition, it's really hard for us to know what kind of actions were required for her to sustain the injuries that she had. So after the presentation of dueling experts, the defense called John to the stand who said what you've already heard here, that he did not hurt those children ever, that he did not see Jada drink from the bottle after 8 a.m., but simply propped up a half-full bottle on a blanket, consistent with Deja's uncontested statement. And again, all this fucking nonsense about the bottle is completely irrelevant because current science supports that in the case of a traumatic event, it could have happened any time over the prior three days or even longer. So whether it was intentional 
or an accident, Jada could have fallen off the couch, the changing table. Knowing what we know now, one cannot maintain that those injuries could have only happened one way, the way that the state maintains, still maintains, violent shaking while Jada was alone in John's care. And that's if the cause even was a traumatic event rather than a pre-existing medical condition. And like I've already mentioned here, there are, and we've counted them, there are 88 potential conditions that we know of so far, and the research is ongoing. Now, I want to quote the man that first hypothesized shaken baby syndrome back in the 1970s, Dr. Norman Guthkelch. We mentioned him earlier, and he wrote an article in 2012, I'll never forget this, that it was titled After 40 Years of Consideration. And that article was harshly critical of his very own hypothesis and everything that has happened since. And so in a 2012 interview, Dr. Guthkelch said, and I quote, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and make a more thorough assessment of these fatal cases. And I'm going to bet that we are going to find in every or at least the large majority of cases that the child had another severe illness of some sort which was missed until too late, end quote. I mean, that's the man himself. But unfortunately, that was 2012, and John's trial was in 2011. So after hearing the state's witnesses up against John's witness and not knowing really a fraction of what we know now, John was convicted almost predictably and sentenced to 15 years to life. John, can you take us back to that terrible moment when the jury came back in? I stand up. I'm listening to the verdict on count one. Count one was the was the highest degree of murder charge. We find a defendant, John Jones, not guilty. I instantly turned back to my family, and the whole sense and feeling of relief just come over me. And I'm just like, finally, like all the everything just all the way, everything just went away. I'm still grieving with the loss of my daughter, but like the stress and the worry of this jail situation and all of this, it just went away because I heard the words, not guilty. Not knowing that they got a whole rest of an indictment to read. So, count two, murder as a result of felonious assault, we find the defendant John Jones guilty. It's just like all the life in my body just left. Initially, it was just tears. It was just like, I can't even explain the feeling. Like, I look at my mom, she crying, my sister crying, everybody crying. Even my baby mom, she crying. At that moment, I just knew, like, it's about to be the longest, hardest fight of my life. And then they sentenced me to 15 years of life. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here with grown men. I'm fresh 18. I'm here with convicted killers. I'm here with people who serve all type of different type of crimes, and I gotta survive. I started trying to educate myself. I got my GED. I just gotta survive. I'm here now, so I gotta try to do everything I can to grow and like prosper the best that I can. I seen a lot in here. I learned a lot in here. I grew up. I found myself in here. I was a kid when I came in. I'm almost 29 now. I learned a lot in here. I'm a whole other person. My perspective, my mentality, my outlook on life, everything is different now. 
Don, what is being done now for this young man? Is there any other exculpatory evidence that we haven't already outlined here or any evidence that the state hid constitutional violations? In terms of constitutional violations, a defendant has a right not to be convicted on the basis of unreliable quasi-scientific evidence. And that's what happened in John's case, and that's what happens in these so-called shaken baby syndrome prosecutions around the country, and particularly in Ohio, and even more particularly in Summit County, which is where Akron is. As Kate pointed out near the beginning today, Ohio is a particular hotspot for these sorts of cases, and not just Ohio, but Summit County and Akron specifically. So either the people of Akron really like to abuse their children, or there's something going on at Akron Children's Hospital and in the Summit County Prosecutor's Office with respect to their proclivity for jumping to the conclusion of child abuse and bringing these types of cases. We are preparing to bring post-conviction litigation on John's behalf. We will argue that the science in this field has changed considerably over the last 10 or 11 years, that if a jury could have heard in 2010 what it could hear today, that a conviction simply wouldn't have happened. So really what you have here and taking a step back is you have a horrible tragedy. You have a conviction based upon science that if it was tried today would not be a viable theory. And you have a man still behind bars based upon that unreliable theory of shaken baby syndrome. Correct. Absolutely. So for our listeners, I, I'm sure you're feeling the same outrage that I'm feeling now. And what, what, what can people do? Um, I certainly think that people can start writing letters to the parole board. Um, John won't be eligible for parole until 2025. And hopefully by that time, we'll have successfully completed litigation on his behalf and parole won't matter. But I certainly think that, that people can start writing to the parole board about these issues because John isn't the only person in Ohio who has to come before a parole board ultimately and convince the parole board that shaken baby syndrome just shouldn't serve as the underpinning for a conviction that keeps someone in prison for the rest of their lives. So that's something that, that people can do. The other thing I would, I would say that people should do, even apart from John's case, is be informed. If you get a jury duty summons, show up. And then don't just believe what the government scientists tell you. Think about it. Decide whether or not what they're saying is credible and makes sense. And listen with open ears to the experts that defense counsel puts on the stand as well. And remember, it's innocent until proven guilty, not the other way around. So with that, John, we're thinking of you all the time, and we're going to do everything we can. You have an extraordinary team, not just on this call, but at the Ohio Innocence Project and throughout the innocence community. Um, I encourage people to donate to the Ohio Innocence Project so that we can help John and so many others who have been wrongfully convicted in the state of Ohio. So with that, now, of course, it's the part of the show called Closing Arguments. First of all, I thank our distinguished guests, even we'll call it a panel today. First time I've ever used that word in Closing Arguments. So from, from Greg and I, thanks again for being here. Greg, thank you for co-hosting with me as well. Thank you very much for allowing me to co-host here, Jason. Okay, and now we'll go to Donald and save Kate for last, just because of alphabetical order. And then over to you, John, of course, for the closing arguments. 
thank you, Jason and Greg, for having us on today and for talking about this really, really important issue and this important part of the criminal justice system that hasn't gotten enough attention recently. When I work with my clients who have been convicted of, of child abuse through this shaken baby syndrome theory, and as I talk to their families, I alternate between sadness and anger. I'm angry, as is everybody in the podcast today, that people go to prison over cases that look like this. And I'm sad because of what it does to people and their families. John went to prison when he was a teenager. And if the state of Ohio has its way, he'll never get out again for something that wasn't a crime. It was a crime that never happened. These cases are enormously difficult to undo. I compare these cases sometimes to like trying to poke a hole through jello. It's easier to make a hole through a very solid object than it is through something that's weak and wiggly. It just closes up around the hole that you've just made. And trying to undo these shaken baby convictions can be exactly like that. We need to do better in our criminal justice system. We need to pay attention to the science. We need to make it a little bit easier to discover the evidence to undo these convictions after they happen. In Ohio, for instance, we really need the ability to do discovery before we file an action so that we can get things like Jada's medical records from birth up until five months so that we can put together the full medical history that we need to do the work in this kind of case. Kate? The prosecution of these types of cases are based on a laudable goal, and that's to protect children and protect the most vulnerable. Nobody wants child abuse. Nobody wants to see abuse at all. Unfortunately, what's happened is that doctors and other experts believe that in these cases, they can do what's called err on the side of the child. They can accuse someone of abuse when they're not sure or when all of the science doesn't unerringly point to the defendant. And you can't err on the side of the child in these kinds of cases. It's impossible. Any error is going to harm both the child who may be a victim and everyone else involved in the case. And that's because when these cases are investigated improperly or charges are brought that are wrongful, that means that a child can be separated from a loving family or that a grieving parent who's lost a child can be punished for something that they didn't do. And it also might mean that a child who is ill or who has had an accident might not get the right medical care for their illness. There's no way to err on the side of the child in these cases. And that's why we have to be so careful. We cannot have convictions that are premised on science that is shaky or science that is ambiguous. And that's why the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences exists, because everybody's right to justice and a fair result depends on a fair process and a fair trial. And you can't have that when there is testimony or opinion introduced at the trial that is overstated or just plain wrong. And now, of course, over to you, John. I just want to shine light on my situation. I want people to realize what I'm going through. And I'm not even the only person going through this. It's possibly being accused of causing the death of our children due to our child science. It's like something that's not even legit. It's a lot of holes, period, in the whole theory and the whole concept of the shaking baby syndrome. So I just want to shed light on that situation first and foremost. And I know that it's going to get better. I know that. I know that. I know that because I know I deserve it. I know that the truth going to come out. I love my daughter. Unconditionally, I love all my children. I have three children, including my daughter who passed away. Rest in peace. I love them unconditionally. Would do anything for them. 
what did my life to them. I gotta continue to fight for my life. I gotta continue to fight for my freedom. And I gotta continue to fight for justice for my daughter because at the end of the day, that's who it's truly about. When we find out the real cause of what happened with her, that's gonna automatically vindicate me. That's gonna automatically exonerate me. But it's gonna also bring closure to my family, my child's mother's family, everybody, you know what I'm saying? Cause it's gonna give us the truth. It's gonna, it's gonna let us know. It's gonna answer the questions that we all got. But at the end of the day, it's just about my daughter. It's about Jaden. Like, it's all about Jaden for her. Yeah, I want my freedom. Yeah, I deserve my freedom. But knowing what happened with her, getting the closure that our families need, and then finally being able to get to a place where we can move forward, because I never really ever even been able to heal from it. I never found closure because not only did I suffer the, one of the deepest losses that anybody on this earth can, can suffer is losing a child. Not only did I experience that and have to deal with that, I got to deal with sitting here every single day. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is Sheep Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.